Okay. Welcome. Great to have you with us. Welcome to Wednesday Night Bible Study. All these people keep coming back for more emotional torment at the hands of the one who gathers the assembly. I'm not talking about me. It's just, so he's saying it's all just like a bunch of hevel, which it is. Bear with me. And um, uh, the, <laughs> my resolve to try and make progress through this book at a higher rate than about five verses per week on average just increases. So what I'm going to do this time, I know this is ludicrous, I'm actually going to read from chapter 12, sorry, chapter 11, sorry, what am I talking about? <laughs> chapter 1, <laughs> verse 12, through to the end of chapter 2. Um, uh, but I think what I'll do is I'm going to, I'm going to sketch the structure of it sort of beforehand and as I do it. Um, and, and I think if I do that, then, well, I'll at least feel like I've said something about all of the major sections so we can go on to chapter 3 next week. That's probably cheating, really, isn't it? Um, but um, it will also, I think, sow some seeds of inquiry in us. If, if you, as we're reading it, we have some idea of um, what we're reading and how it all fits together. So that's the plan. Uh, let me pray. Let's see if um, we can call on our Lord to help us, as usual, and um, then jump in to chapter 1, verse 12. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we come before you again as ever needy and helpless yet redeemed by the grace of Christ and so one with him in whom is found wisdom and righteousness and knowledge and truth and skill at living life. And we ask, Father, that you would bestow upon us those things in Jesus as we reflect on these puzzling words from his illustrious forefather Solomon. Please would you help us to help one another. In one sense we're doing at least the first thing of what Solomon says this evening by gathering together around the scriptures to hear and we ask that as we do so you would speak to us through the insights that you give to everyone here that we all may grow in knowledge and understanding and insight and wisdom and more than that may grow more able to live life faithfully and to serve as those who are animated by the Spirit of Christ and so bring glory to him and we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so just before we read, quick recap, you know the story so far more or less. These are the words of Kohelet, which is translated the preacher in your Bibles and my Bible. It comes from the word um, kahal, which is, means to gather an assembly of people. He's the one who gathers people together to listen and hear. And we considered a number of reasons why he doesn't disclose his true identity, which is obviously Solomon. Um, maybe his identity is veiled like the meaning of the book and the meaning of life is veiled. Or maybe he wants to generalize his message beyond just the experience of one man. Um, so he's not Solomon, he's just 
any man who gathers an assembly, and this is what people who are seeking wisdom need to hear throughout the ages. And there are other reasons as well. And um, chapter 1, verse 2, Hevel of hevels, everything is hevel. Um, not uh, futile or meaningless. Not really quite vanity either. The word hevel means what? Vapor. Uh, vapor in the sense of mist or fog. And you remember uh, one of the things I tried to encourage you to do, especially in this book, but actually throughout biblical literature, actually, wherever we're looking, is to not abstract too quickly from a concrete image like vapor. Not that vapor is very concrete, but, you know, a kind of uh, a symbolic or uh, physical thing like vapor. Don't abstract too something like oh, temporariness. Don't do that too hastily. Let the image resonate in your mind, and, and it will point in multiple directions, which is why images like that are used. So life is like vapor, mist. It is temporary. At the same time, it's spectacularly wonderful, and sometimes you just wish you could grasp it and freeze it in time forever, but you can't do that. However, um, the, those wonderful moments are fleeting moments. But that doesn't mean they're pointless moments. In fact, quite the contrary. Um, there's nothing better than for a, uh, a man to go home after Bible study and have a glass of bourbon at nine o'clock to enjoy that moment in the evening sunshine, as Mr. Loki and I did in separate parts of Fort Worth a couple of weeks ago. There's nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work, even though it's all vapor. And so we're playing with the tensions that exist in real life. They're tensions that arise from the, uh, the great event that's recalled at the center of the book. Remember the, the word, the preacher, Kohelet, uh, it occurs seven times, three times at the beginning, three times at the end, one time in the middle, where you've got a retelling of the drama of the fall. Um, God made man upright, but he has sought out many schemes, many devious devices. And so what's happening here is that we're wrestling with the reality of a gorgeous and beautiful and wonderful world that God made that's upright in the sense of straight and ordered how it ought to be. But people have sought out many schemes. People have twisted things. And we'll see something about being twisted in a, a couple of minutes. And so how do, you, how do you live in a world that's actually like that? What does it mean to live wisely in that world? And one thing it means is to be very, very clear about the um, effects of sin and death and temporariness without rubbishing all the glory that God has left in the world. So that's where we're kind of coming from. Uh, now, this section, before I read it, I want to talk you through the structure. Roughly speaking, I think it goes like this. You have a kind of... Um, introductory section, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, um, where he says, I'm the wisest guy who's ever lived. I tried to figure all this stuff out for you. And then he gives you a brief conclusion about what he found. But then what he actually does is to dive in and explore the different aspects of life that he has delved into one at a time. So uh, in 
verse 17, for example, he says that he applied his heart to know wisdom and madness and folly. And that applying his heart and mind to know wisdom takes him to the end of chapter 1. Then, chapter 2, verse 1, let's try pleasure. Let's try hedonism. Let's try the delights of just physically enjoying ourselves in the world. See if that provides the key to unlocking the mystery of life. Takes us down to verse 11. Then chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, we're back to wisdom again, which is a bit puzzling. No surprise, it's a bit puzzling. These areas, the the outline isn't neat and tidy because Ecclesiastes isn't neat and tidy because life isn't neat and tidy. But it's looking at wisdom again from another angle, perhaps, 212 to 17. And then a different subject, toil, 2.18 down to 23. He starts to think, okay, well, if I can't find pleasure, and sorry, if I can't find permanence in wisdom or in pleasure, how about work, good, honest toil? Chapter 2, verse 18 to 23. And then at the end, verse 24, he basically has run out of gas. He's like, I don't, I, there's, no, there's, no, there's no permanence and stability to be found anywhere, and you're expecting him to just give up and despair. And then he starts talking about a concluding section, verse 24 to 26. There's nothing better that, than that we should actually embrace all these things, eat and drink and find pleasure in our toil. Yeah? So, introduction, uh, wisdom, pleasures, wisdom again, toil, conclusion at the end and what you'll notice is that the uh, the the concluding remarks in each of those sections become longer and increasingly intense and embittered it seem almost embittered and despairing by the end of the vanity of toil section so the, those explorations of different facets of life, they've got a little conclusion, and the conclusion says, didn't find it here. And then the next conclusion, I really didn't find it here, and it's starting to get on my nerves. And the next conclusion, I'm totally going stir-crazy because I can't find it here. You're expecting him just to you know, take his own life or something, and then he gets to the end, and it's like, so we should just enjoy all the things we have. So that's roughly the shape of it, Okay. Let's just jump in, and I'll, I'll pick up some of those threads as we go. And I'll also indicate some of the questions that uh, we might want to explore together. So, I, the preacher, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. See? That's the project. That's what we're going to do. I want to figure everything out. There we are. <laughs> You're welcome. Verse 12, conclusion. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, hevel, vapor, and striving after wind. And then you've got a little aphorism. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. So I want to know what that aphorism is doing there. Maybe you want to tell me about that. In a, in a few minutes. I also want to know why he's going to bother to go into all this detail when he's already told you the conclusion. He's already told you, I've seen everything, and behold, everything is vapour. But let me show you anyway. <laughs> like, so I, mean, I need to know the answer to that question as well. So, verse 16, 
I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is all but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There's a little conclusion, you see? So I tried wisdom. Quite, quite wise I was, and the more you know, the more frustrating it gets. We'll get back to that. Now, let's try something else. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Literally, I'm sorry, this, this little clip here is, magnet is rather strong. Um, that's not magnetic at all, right? Okay. Um, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Literally, see good. Pleasure, what are we going to find? But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. Why would you pursue folly when you're trying to pursue pleasure? Hmm. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And then you get some details here, and we're going to spend some time looking at these details. This is what Solomon did in his pursuit of completeness and permanence through pleasures of this world. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So I didn't lose the wisdom that I had before in pursuing these hedonistic pleasure. So what did I find? Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired. Hmm. You seen that before anywhere? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, anticipating where we're going later. And this was my reward for my toil. Conclusion. Then I sat back and thought, hmm, what have I found? I considered... All that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That was a bit disappointing, wasn't it? So, can you see, that's the first big, well, there's, no, the second really big area of life he's explored. Let's see where he goes next. So, I turned, change of tack, to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done, no idea why that's in there. Second half of that verse. Those two questions. Well, the question and then the answer. Verse 13. I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Can you see the intensity of his frustrated reaction is now somewhat stronger than before. 
So I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life. Oh, don't do it, Solomon. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. See the same? So you see the conclusions are getting longer and more teeth-grindingly frustrated. Finally, verse 18, I hated, so now it's really, really unhappy. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing as I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And now comes the long conclusion of the toil section. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You see what he's doing? He's looking around at the world and each time he looks at something new, he says less about it to leave space for a longer conclusion which becomes more and more anguished and frustrated. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him... Who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So, there you've got that conclusion. Verses 24 to 26. Is that positive? Is it? He's just calmed down a little bit. Is it negative? Is it more circumspect? Is it more wise? Where's he ended up? So, I've got a whole bunch of questions I'd love to ask you. Let me pause, though, at this stage and see if um, you guys have any thoughts or comments or questions about things that you'd like to talk about that pops into your head as you were looking at this. Any comments at this stage? Aaron. Um, just starting out right at the beginning, um, I'm not sure if there's anything here. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Yeah. Um, and I applied my heart to seek out and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Um, and then after that, we get under the sun over and over and over again. I'm wondering if yeah. there's anything to the meaning for the under, under heaven, because like, I don't see that in the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So under the sun versus under heaven. Let me have, I'll just make a note of that. Under heaven, this is the sun. Okay, we did. We talked a little bit about the sun bit um, last time. Okay, thank you. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Mrs. Bennett. Um, I noticed that there's that big chunk in the middle, and then it's not until chapter two, verse twenty-four, that he says anything about God. Yeah, it's not until. Chapter 2, verse 24, that he says anything about God. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God. Did you notice... Um, um, Actually, it was in 113. Yeah, 113. That's what was so, right at the beginning, second half of verse 13, the summary of all that he's about to talk about um, includes the just side comment that God has given this unhappy business. So there, there are certain solutions to the so-called problem of evil that won't work at this point. Right? Um, the solution that this wasn't really God's doing. Well, we've got to get rid of that. You probably knew that already. But this is an unhappy business that God has done. God has given to the children of man. So there's a question then. Does... I'll make a note of this. Does all of the turmoil in the middle of this section arise because God has slipped out of the picture? Or is there some other explanation for it? I'm, I don't think it's a good summary of Ecclesiastes as a whole to say, this is what life is like if you forget about God. I don't think that's true because God is mentioned too many times. He has too instrumental a role. But is there a sense in which sometimes um, the centrality of the Lord could slip? from your gaze, and that's when the wheels come flying off. Don't know. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Jack. To that point, and when reading it, with the word vanity as hevel, which is when you're talking about vapor or mist, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So I try no. to keep that in mind if you read it. And throughout chapter 2, in those three sections, self-indulgence, wisdom, and toil, it seems like he's measuring these things sort of by the standards of our own wisdom and like what, and becoming increasingly frustrated with the, the temporariness, the vapor <coughs> of it. Yeah. But the, the end there when, he, when he's talking about how God gives enjoyment in toil and great joy and he's seeing these things as part of God's purpose out of, as an act of obedience to God, that's still heaven, he says at the end of that. But it doesn't seem to be that he's frustrated about it. And maybe that doesn't change what it is, but it changes how we see it and how right. how heaven is actually maybe a good thing in the last. Yeah, I think wrong, I, th- I think that that's that's um. There's definitely something significant about that. What makes life bearable in this? section and in the whole of Ecclesiastes and the whole of life is not whether or not it's hevel. It's not like the hevel stuff is bad and everything else is good because everything's hevel. Everything's mist and vapor. So there must be something about how you measure it, how you look at it. And um, measured by our standards, we'll we'll come to that in... um, Chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. I've got something to show you, um, which we'll get to in a few minutes, about how, where his focus is, actually. And it is very much um, is directed towards himself. Um, so, yeah, very good. I like that. Yeah, Uriah. Somebody online. Nan? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> prophet or a son of a prophet? No. Uh, so, guys, to, uh, to quickly borrow a picture from that the Lord used uh, when talking to Nicodemus. The Lord described the spirit as like the wind 
and that it is not something that man can control. Is this sort of idea in play when Solomon talks about things being like mist or vapor? So is Solomon getting more frustrated about these searches because he's unable to control or manipulate the way things work no matter what he does? Right. Yeah, I think that's definitely um, significant. And what's the big thing that you can't control that's right in the middle of the passage in verses, um, well, I guess, uh, 14, 15, 16? What's the big thing? Death. Death, yes. Um, And just even in the last few days... You know, we've been praying for one family in the church who've you know, stumbled unexpectedly into that um, most horrible of um, episodes. And um, you know, half, half of the English-speaking world, not so much this half, actually, <laughs> the other half mourning the death of Queen Elizabeth, um, it's not, not exactly unexpected, um, but somehow it's still always a shock. And, um, yeah. So I think there may be something about that. Um, the spirit in John 3 is the spirit of Ezekiel 37 that blows to bring life to the dry bones um, that Ezekiel sees in the valley of dry bones. So, um, that's actually a spirit that, breathe, that breathes life, which is a somewhat different um, thought. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, Mr. Robinson. I think you may have already mentioned this in some of the, in a couple of the earlier studies, but in, at least in two, one through eleven, it's, it starts to sound like he's acting as a academic representative. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. You start to see these themes tying together in, um, especially look through verses four to eight. Um, there's so many allusions there to either a garden explicitly, as in Garden of Eden, or the temple, gold and silver, um, which is also a rebuilt Garden of Eden, that it's very hard not to see that there. And that, that actually makes sense of some of the other details that, like I said, we'll look at, look at a bit later. Um, yeah, so uh, Solomon is a, a new Adam. His job is to rule, and the problem is you've got to rule a world that doesn't like to lie down and do what it's told. Um, it's, a, it's a world, we're, we're trying to take control of something that, that isn't controllable, like the wind, man, like mist, hevel. So there's that part of the deal, and then it just evaporates, death, unexpectedly. Okay. Any other thoughts, um, areas you want to... Yeah, Mr. Bennett. Building on that comparison with Adam, there in the beginning of chapter 2, about searching out wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. Sounds a bit like good and evil. Yeah. Yeah? And and you wonder, is he fooling himself when he says, my heart's still guarding me, guiding me? Right. 
That's a, just, it's a fascinating section, that. Chapter 2, verse 3. I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom. Really? Hmm. Yes, okay, possibly. And how to lay hold on folly. What's it? Huh? <laughs> so is it, is the pleasure that he's seeking that kind of ephemeral foolishness? I don't know. Um, Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Few days. Because verse 14, 15. Um, yes. I don't... It's very easy to understand why he might say, let's see what stability can be found in wisdom. But why does he turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly? Why does he pursue folly? What, what does it mean to do that? I, maybe we'll come to that. Thank you. Right, any other thoughts? These are ingredients for um, the pot, and they're all juicy, good ingredients. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when did he write, Pastor Neil? Is this something you've thought about? When exactly he wrote? A little bit. Go on. Older, because. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. I think that's so profoundly important. And actually, that opens up what I wanted to talk about next as we jump into this in more detail. So it's likely he's towards the end of his life, um, both because he's done all the great works, acquired all the concubines and so on and so forth. And Pastor Neil highlighted in chapter 12, um, it almost, I mean, this is the wrong way around. It sounds Tolkien-esque to me. Um, the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is shattered and the picture is broken at the fountain, the wheel broken at the cistern. It's like, is this the scouring of the shire or something? You know, it's just like, do you know what I mean? I think Tolkien probably got it from the Bible rather than the other way around. But, so these images of death which seem to now appear more pertinent to the man. Also notice in chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Okay, that's not something that young men say. Right, so I think he's an old man, um, and he's been slapped around by life a little bit, and he's looking back. Actually, there are also indications, um, uh, even in chapter 2, Verse 21, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by somebody who did not toil for it. Can you think of any way that that's echoed in Solomon's life? 
he works with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then leaves everything to be ruined by some other fool who didn't work for it. Rehoboam. Yeah, his son, Rehoboam, exactly. And we, uh, we might want to go and have a look at that, First Kings 12. So after Solomon dies at the end of First Kings 11, he can probably, Solomon can probably see the writing on the wall even as he approaches death because Solomon clearly is not, sorry, Rehoboam is not the wise man that he needs to be. And the kingdom splits within a generation. In fact, it looks like it splits within months. Um, okay. Um, let me suggest we, we, um, we just jump in and have a look at um, some of these details then. I, I want to know what you think of chapter 1, verse 13. Um, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Well, that's a great evangelistic sermon, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's... Um, you know, I made the point um, uh, the, the first session that I, I love giving Ecclesiastes to people who aren't Christians and encouraging them to read it. And I had a conversation with a young man a few months ago who at that time wasn't a believer and is now, praise God. And I said, I think you should go read Ecclesiastes. And the reason I do it is because it completely blows out of the water any sense that true Christian faith is the naive, uh, Pollyannish, um, manipulative, childish, come to Jesus and all your problems will get solved nonsense that you hear on God TV in the UK. And I don't know what the equivalents are over here because I don't even have a TV subscription. <laughs> and verse... Um, 13, God has given you an unhappy business. Anne, sort this out for us. No, it's actually like Axa and what's his name? Othniel. Axa and Othniel. So like Axa and Othniel... Um, they've got the inheritance, the field, yeah. and they get, well, you should go and ask him for water then. And, and Caleb says, yeah, okay, you can have water, but the water's five miles over there. Enjoy. <laughs> so is it kind of similar? Is it, how would it be similar? But getting water into the field is hard. Yeah, yeah. Right, so it's hard, it's puzzling, it's ha- how do you do this, it's difficult work. Does that also help to understand how you can have a positive ending at the end of chapter 2? How? They're given that opportunity. And after they've done the toil... I mean, they're exhausted. I mean, I don't know how many years it took them to create irrigation channels or build pipes. I mean, irrigation had basically just been invented a few hundred years earlier in Egypt, um, which they would have been handy for Axa and Othniel because they just, you know, their parents had come from Egypt. Um, so, yeah, work your entire life. Oh, yeah, and you get to the end. Actually, you have accomplished something. But you just got to the end of your life. Yeah. Yeah, but you did that. Yes. So, and it's almost as if it's well, what else? What other choice have you got? So, here you are. 
you're born outside the garden. Sorry about that. So God has given you an unhappy business to be busy with. Um, uh, expectant lady, it's going to be painful. Once a child is born, it doesn't get any easier. Looking forward to getting your first job. Excellent. Police officer. <laughs> right? Um, I, I was a chaplain in the police service in, in uh, London. I spoke to a police officer whose colleague had had broken glass put in a mug of tea that they'd been given on a home visit. Um, I was at church with a guy who was a police officer, had boiling water thrown over him. Like, trying to serve the public. <laughs> it's an unhappy business. So what are you going to do? Look, look carefully. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to do what? Yeah. So, why does it have that phrase, to be busy with? Yeah, exactly. Because you keep at it. There's no, there isn't like an alternative there's not a, a really fruitful alternative to work. Um, this, is, this is plan A, and there's no plan B. So, Pastor Neil, you've, you're... All right, okay. When you lean forward and look at your Bible like that, I'm thinking, oh, this could be good. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I think it's... I don't know what the mystery is about grievous task and labor, but wasn't part of the curse. Hmm. Labor was present before the curse. Yes. Yeah. And then chapter 2 ends with uh, nothing better than for men to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Yeah. It's yeah. garden restoration. Mm. Yeah. So, the, so the, the, it's, it's, that's the juxtaposition again of the, this glorious task you have of work and this miserable task that you have of work thorns and thistles. Broken glass in a mug of tea, um, pain in childbirth, and then your theology teacher gives you more homework than you can even lift, never mind do. Yeah? So, and, and all of that, God has given. Um, brief aside, the, the so called problem of evil arises because of the simultaneous truth of three things. First, uh, God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. Second, God is good. And then third, evil genuinely exists. So there's genuinely evil in the world, and God is good, and God is sovereign. So how could all those things be true at the same time? All of the superficial and wrong solutions work by denying one of those three Things. Picture them as points of a triangle. If you cut off one of the points of the triangle, you've solved the problem. Because let's say God isn't good. God is just powerful and evil exists. Well, because God's evil. Or, um, God isn't, or evil doesn't exist. You make evil an illusion, so God is powerful and God is good and evil is an illusion. Or the most common one, the most common non-solution to the problem of evil is to deny God's sovereignty. To say... There's some sense in which God steps back from the created order at the point where evil enters or where sin is done or when people are miserable. And scripture will not allow that. It's just so emphatic. 
And um, the so-called free will defense, if you've read any philosophical theology, um, Alvin Plantinga, good guy, mistake. Free will is not the answer to the problem of evil. If by free will, the invoking of free will, you're undermining the sovereignty of God. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, the prophet says, speaking the words of the Lord, I create evil. And the word for create is bara, which is the verb that's used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So it's, um, maybe it's not in that verse, but it's throughout Genesis 1 elsewhere. Um, so the problem exists because God remains sovereign in those circumstances. So we'll deal with that another time. <laughs> deal with it. I mean, that's a, obviously we won't deal with it. We'll wrestle with it and fail to deal with it another time. How's that? Um, so then, um, God has given us this unhappy business, verse 13. Verse 14, I've, this is a, a totalizing statement. Just look down at chapter 1, verse 14. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and all, everything, is vanity and a striving after wind. So we can just move on now to chapter 3. Just trust me on this. I'm an old man. I've seen it all. I've done most of it. Uh, everything is hevel. Now we can go straight to chapter 3, verse 1. So why would Solomon bother to drag you through all of the long, tedious, and frust- increasingly frustrating narrative of what he's done to reach that conclusion. Yes, yeah, Samuel. My only guess is that it's just simple preparation, or anything but simple, because it's Solomon, but it feels like a preparation for the bigger course. So, preparation... Why wouldn't just being told the answer be enough preparation? Like you're talking to a kid. Don't do this because you'll hurt yourself. What's the kid going to do? Whatever it is, yeah? Why? (laughs) Because they want to see what will happen. Yeah? Yeah? I wonder if it, what, partly what's behind it is the idea that every generation needs to kind of discover these things for themselves. We, it is true that our forefathers in the faith discovered all this. But somehow we need to... We're not satisfied with that, are we? We... Um, we have to go and do it for ourselves. And actually, it's important that we're required to go and do these things for ourselves. And I wonder if that's part of why. Because I, I when I just first read through this, I thought, you get to verse 14, you could just stop. But, but we wouldn't want to. Yeah, if Solomon hadn't carried on, we'd still want to carry on. Well, I know, I've got an idea. I bet, bet nobody's ever thought of this. I'm going to try pleasure and see if that works. <laughs> like, well, okay. Um, and, so, and so Solomon narrates through what you're going to discover. And he knows you're going to go and try it for yourselves. We'll all try it. And we'll, at various points, discover what he discovered. I think that may be it. How does that sound? Does that sound possible? 
Okay, okay. Yeah, chat. On that, um, I don't think it contains enough information to just say everything is Hevel. Hmm. Because as we kind of talked before, Hevel means it is a, it's a poetic image hmm. that is interpreted different ways in different places. Yeah, yeah. So to say that doesn't actually mean as much as to demonstrate how each of these things is Hevel, because in some ways they're Hevel in different ways. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's right. It's not a complete summary. Exactly. It's yeah, it's it's um, life is actually really textured. There's there's happy Hevel and frustrating Hevel and um, so yeah, I think that's right. I mean, maybe we need to go through it ourselves. Pastor Neil waving an arm. Yes. I think that's really interesting because if we're just a bag of juice, you know, pleasure is a much deeper and richer and more wonderful thing than what you'd... Well, yeah. Well, why, why doesn't everything taste like that goop in the Matrix? Remember that? Um, when it, remember, remember that's an amazing scene. When they're on the spaceship, hands up if you've watched The Matrix. I'm showing my age now. Oh man, okay, some of you have. Okay, and and um, there's that the young enthusiastic crew member who takes a big dollop of this kind of like sloppy kind of oatmeal gunk, and he says, "Do you remember, do you remember what he says? He says it's got everything the body needs." And the other guy sits down next to him and says, "It hasn't got everything the body needs." So there's this huge kind of existential question that arises like what does the body need does it just have does it just need vitamins and minerals or does it need like fried chicken with that kind of coating that's got all the kind of spices in it or does it need a a mug of earl grey tea in the morning like because that's not because like yeah two of us definitely do and that's not just water and a bit of milk and some minerals it's it's really something else. And so, yeah. It, interestingly, in discovering that pleasure doesn't solve the problem of Hevel, he nonetheless encounters pleasure. And it's like, oh, Ashley had a really good time. Yeah, okay. Let me um, encourage, encourage us to jump over the, page, over the page in my Bible. I want to look at um, this stuff in chapter 2. We're on the subject of pleasure, because um, if we read through from verse 4, we'd read down verses 2 and 3 a moment or two ago. Um, look with me here and see what, Mr. Robinson, you talked about Eden, or sorry, Adam, and the kind of Garden of Eden project. See if you can see another, any other hints of that here. Look, chapter 2, verse 4. Um, I made great works, I built houses, and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself uh, gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself 
pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So, echoes of Garden of Eden. Mr. Robinson, you were talking about this. You seeing anything in particular? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just—it seems like the kinds of things that Adam would have progressed. To, it seems like the kinds of more advanced human type things. Right. Right. He wouldn't have just immediately got whatever you want to do with the slaves, but like he wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't have occurred to you to have immediately put, you know, the guns to work as slaves. But he would have evolved into that. He wouldn't have known exactly. Yes. How to Yeah, yeah. It seems to be like an just technologically advanced Adam, and even with all the good things. So I don't necessarily read any of these things as negative. I know it's a question of the concubine and the Right, but right. It seems like he's saying, look at all this awesome stuff that God has given us to do, and I've done it, I've done it successfully, and it's like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meh. Meh. How do you say that? Meh. Um, so so I, think you're, I think you're dead right, Todd. It's... There's, there are the ingredients here that you find in Genesis 1 and 2. Just look, I'll show you. Um, oh, sorry, I'll, and I'll add the extra bit that you're pointing to. There, there are the ingredients there, but some of them are developed further. So, for example, um, I made great works. Well, Adam is told to work, Genesis 1. Um, planted, so built houses planted vineyards for myself, made myself gardens and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Well, there's trees in the garden, but he's planting new trees. Now, there's all kinds of plants in the garden, but he's planting new ones. Um, The house, okay, I built houses. Solomon built houses. Which two houses in particular did he build? One was the temple. One was the temple. Mm -hmm. And what was the other? His own house. So he built two houses right next door to each other. Here's a temple. Here's my house. Go figure. (laughs) Yeah, his house was quite a lot bigger. And the temple itself is a kind of glorified Garden of Eden, all the imagery of the trees and so on inside it. It's where the Lord dwells. It's where man can meet with God. But then you start to see cracks in the facade. And I think um, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And you think, hmm, uh, not altogether wonderful. Um, I had great possessions of herds and flocks. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So is that good? Because herds and flocks, okay, well, they're, maybe they're sacrificial animals for the temple, for worshipping God. Is it good because silver and gold, well, you've got gold in uh, the land of Havilah in Genesis 2, where God put Adam in the garden. Is it good? Or you've got a king with possessions 
and silver and gold and, verse 8, many concubines. Does that worry anybody? Uh, Right. Those are the things that Israel is specifically said. When you get yourself a king, like, make sure a king doesn't do this. Where would we find that Bible quiz time? Uh, Before 1 Samuel. It's in the law. Go on, Pastor Neil. Yeah. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17. Go back to Deuteronomy 17. This is really kind of... Well, and and it, it helps us to piece together what's going on here, and then we'll start to see more of these um, details. Because you also see, you also see the one thing that he didn't do. So look, um, here he is. He's, let's recap. He's, um, he's the, the super Adamic king who's taking Adam's project of being in the garden and making it more wonderful, planting trees creating irrigation from the water that's there in the garden. He's, he's, he's a super Adam. But then, chapter, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14, when you come to the land that your Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers shall be set as king over you, not a foreigner. Uh, only, verse 16, He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Then verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Well, a concubine is just a wife who's deprived of legal rights. Solomon had 700 of them. No, 300 of them. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So when you see Solomon, like acquiring all these glorious possessions. It's like the, the, the guy who's put in this position of such privilege, doing these wonderful things, and then you start to see those wonderful things in the light of, no, 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 that, that probably isn't such a good idea. Can you see? And in some sense, Solomon's experience is a foretaste of what we all are tempted by, I think. I was actually thinking, to, I, I did some research today in preparation for Sunday's sermon to try and figure out um, how much of the wealth of the Protestant church is concentrated in America. America has something like 13 or 14 percent of the world's Protestants and well over half the Protestant church's wealth like well over half. Um, I mean, America has, which is mostly Protestant, there's hardly any Catholics by percentage terms. No, quite a lot, but still only like 10 million as opposed to 140 million. Um, America has uh, almost half of the church's wealth, including all the global Catholics, but only 37% of the world's church is actually Protestant. So if if you figure out how... What a vast proportion of the, the wealth of um, the world's Protestant Christians is found in America. Like, we're this tiny slice of the church, and we've got all this. And so Solomon is this one man, and he's got all this. 
and is significant in the book of Joshua in chapter 17 because Ephraim and Manasseh are this, well, they're two tribes. They're quite small. And we did the math, didn't we? Because I took my little map down to Mrs. Loki to, to show her. I said, how much of you think of this land belongs to Ephraim and Manasseh? And we reckon just under half, right? And I'll show you that on Sunday, so don't worry for Sunday. But it seems, the way things work out, you've got a small fraction of the people with a vast amount of the wealth. And Solomon is like that on steroids. And he's not supposed to do all these things. Verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, what he, what's he supposed to write for himself? Yeah, copy of the book of the law. That would be handy. Cause <laughs> and you look back at Ecclesiastes. Um, can you find him writing the book of the law? Well, I'm afraid you can. Um, you, it's kind of hard to see in our English Bibles. But what I just read you um, is... Uh, Solomon's Ten Commandments. If you read from verse 4 down to verse 8, there are ten Hebrew clauses and ten main verbs. And each of them gets longer than the previous ones. There are a couple of variations, but they get longer and longer and longer. There's this gathering pace of Solomon's ten words about what he did. I'll show you. I made great works, number one. I built houses, number two. Planted vineyards, three. I made myself gardens and parks, four. Planted in the more kinds of fruit trees, that's five. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, six. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house, that's seven. I also had great possessions, of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me. That's eight. What's the eighth commandment again? Don't steal. I had great possessions. That's my eighth word. Hmm. Nine. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Number ten, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So there are ten clauses Ten distinct phrases. And if you look in um, uh, the, I forget the, the name of the commentary series, Apollos commentary series, I think, Daniel Estes and somebody else, they, they lay out the phrases and the number of syllables in Hebrew gets bigger each time. So you've got this, like a snowball of ten clauses, ten words, ten commandments. There are ten words in Genesis 1 as well, ten times and God said. So Genesis 1, when God's creating the world, God said ten times. Exodus 20, when God's recreating the world, God said ten words. They're not, never called ten commandments. They're always called ten words. Whatever the Bible translations say, it says ten words. Here, Solomon's got his ten words, all about what he did. And about halfway through, it starts to go off the rails. And then you notice something else. How many of you notice this? I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens, verse 6, I made myself pools, I had great possessions, verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure. What do you notice? For myself, for myself. 
How many times are you expecting to find the phrase for myself? You've got 10 times I did something, 10 words. Then you've got lots of for myself. How many for myself are you expecting to find? That, that, that'd be neat, but that's not quite right. Not nearly. What, um, yeah. Right, you're expecting to find ten. Guess how many there are? There are nine. So what do we do now? Look for the other one, obviously. Now, the, the phrase, the, some of them for myself or to me or something, they don't appear in English. It's a Hebrew phrase. It literally, it's it's to me or for me. It's the, it's the word li. And the l is to or for and the e is me. So it's to me. So it's to me, for me, for me, for me. And if you're reading five verses and you've got to me, for me, to me, for me, it, it really shouts and screams at you. It's not difficult to see this nine times. It's a very common phrase in the Old Testament. It's nearly 750 times in the whole of the Old Testament that this phrase appears, but it only appears one other time in the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll show you where. Turn to chapter 12, verse 1. And then you discover what it is that Solomon's forgotten. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, there is, to me, no pleasure in them. That's the tenth to me. So what is to me? What's the tenth one? No pleasure. It's kind of ironic, given that he sent out to, to search pleasure, and he replaced God's ten words with ten grand accomplishments, which gradually drifted off the rails. You know, started with planting fruit trees, great idea. Halfway through, you're gathering slaves, not such a great idea. By the end, how many concubines, really? So your, your ten commandments, Solomon, are not the ten commandments. And it's all for me, for me, for me, for me, for me. And chapter 12, verse 1, really... Um, you'd forgotten your creator. So he's an old man, Pastor Neil's right. So, gentlemen, you're still young. Ladies, you're still young. We're all young compared to Solomon. Right? He's, you know, he died a couple of thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago. Um, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure. So remember your creator, because ten creative words. Chapter 12, verse 10. Literally, the preacher sought to find words of pleasure. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. And then you've got the little saying about the words of the wise. And then verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That would be a really good idea, Solomon. 
fear God and keep his commandments, not seek pleasure and replace his commandments. You see how the beginning and the end all tie together? It's really kind of intermeshed. Um, But it's it's really remarkable that that little phrase, to me or for me, doesn't appear anywhere else in Ecclesiastes. That's a a difficult thing to accomplish because it appears in nearly every chapter of the Bible. Um, And it... It's obviously supposed to resonate here. Yeah, Mr. Robinson. Would it be best, therefore, in light of what you're saying, to take verse 3, my heart's still guiding me, and verse 9, and not look for anything else ironic? Right. So that's, that's a really difficult question, I think. So verse 3, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. Verse 9, my wisdom remained with me. You're saying, should we understand them as ironic statements? Um, Possibly. Are there any alternatives to that? Mr. Barnes. Just hokmah. Yeah, it's a very common word all the way through this. So. It's like bona fide. Well, the word is Proverbs wisdom. wisdom. It's Proverbs wisdom, yeah. So, so one way to understand it is it's just ironic. So, yeah, my wisdom huh, stayed with me. Um, I, I think it... This kind of... My other suggestion overlaps with that, and it's not actually entirely distinct from it. But what if it's not ironic? What if that's actually about as good as it gets? It's not that Solomon's saying, yeah, my wisdom, because I wasn't being at all wise, I was being really stupid, remained with me. It's my wisdom, and actually this is, this is the closest thing to wisdom. And still, you know, I have acquired great wisdom, more than any in Jerusalem before me. Um, he's actually wise. And isn't Ecclesiastes about, it's not about the ironic lack of wisdom. It's about the limitations of even having great wisdom. You could be Pastor Neil and Pastor Booth all rolled into one. I mean, like, they're both, they're both the wisest man in any room they walk into. I saw this at Presbytery the last couple of days. Um, it was great, wasn't it? This, those conversations with those guys. It's just always fascinating to watch um, seasoned pastors at work, really, and, and education. Uh, for anybody who's been doing it less than 35 years, which is certainly me. Um, But I I don't think we necessarily need to read it as a kind of ironic wisdom. I think it's like, yeah, you could get all that wisdom. And chapter 1, verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation. There is... There is no way that the the solution is not just get more wisdom. The solution is somehow to recognize the inherent limitations of wisdom in a fallen world um, because of our sin and the death that we face. No amount of wisdom will stop you dying. And no amount of wisdom will stop us permanently in this life sinning either. Um, Mr. Barnes, but... um, uh, Becky first, yeah. Um, I wonder if it's also like we've always all seen people who have been tripped up by sin 
and you kind of like, you know, it's right. like foolish. Yeah. But then yeah. there's other people that we see dive deep in and know they know what they're doing. Right, right. They're, they're, they know the consequences. They know what they're doing, but they're choosing to ignore that mm, because mm. they want to have the affair or whatever. Yes, yes. And I'm wondering if it's kind of like that, that he, he didn't lose his sense of what was right and wrong, what was true and, and wise. Mm. He just was delving into it anyway. So do you think, as, as, you look, as you think of the life of Solomon, do you think he's more like your, your first or your second example? Do you think he's just misled... Or he's just diving in. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's choosing to do it anyway. And maybe that's where the sorrow comes from because he knew that he shouldn't have done that sin. Because part of me wants to say, you may be right. I was, gonna, I was expecting you to say, yeah, he's more like the first example because what happened was he, he allowed himself to be hoodwinked. But if, if we're supposed to see him as like the wisest man who ever lived, he, then we must, you know, Jesus apart, you know, the wisest man ever king in Jerusalem up to that point, then we can't say, we, we don't want to say too readily he was just foolish and deceived. It, if we can find an explanation a different explanation that keeps his wisdom intact but shows its limitations, that, that would be more persuasive. So maybe what he's doing is, well, put, put it this way, could, could being really, really wise actually lead you to sin? How, what happens with... Re- Pastor Neil's smiling. He's, you can see where this is headed. If somebody who's really, really smart and really, really wise... Could wisdom ever be used for, like, justifying? Yeah, because there's always some kind of rationale that you could dream up. Yeah, you set your hand up. Yeah, go ahead, Ruth. Yes. Yeah, I can. I could stop myself at any time. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I think that there may the combination of you can rationalise, and you think, well, if it turns out bad, I can always get myself out of it. I mean, how do you end up with a thousand wives and concubines? I mean, that, what what did you <laughs> didn't you start to think when you got like seven or eight that that that's like well, I probably shouldn't have this many. You know, I, forget, I keep forgetting their names. You know, if if you, what well, what madness would grip you to think that's ever a good idea? And maybe just this kind of spiral of folly, which masquerade and actually is wisdom. That's the thing about it. It's not. It's not genuine wisdom. It is wisdom, just misdeployed and misdirected. So who's the wisest of all the creatures in the garden? The serpent. He's the most shrewd. Yeah? And, and often our translations will translate it crafty because that's a good way to get the idea of smart, sharp approach to life and, and make it sound bad. The problem is the word itself is used as a virtue 
many times in Scripture. So it, it doesn't have any, abstractly, it doesn't have moral content. It just means shrewd. And we're supposed to be as shrewd as serpents, because Jesus says so. And the problem is, if you're shrewd as a serpent, then start doing the sort of things that serpents do. Um, yeah, that will be bad. Yeah, go ahead. So all this, most, all of what we've been discussing for the last you know, minutes, uh, I think revolves around at least three verses in chapter one and chapter two, where there is a, 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 an immediate contrast uh, or pairing of the words wisdom and folly. So verse, chapter one, verse 17, uh, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and madness and folly. Right. Yeah, verse 12, wisdom and madness and, and folly. myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. Um, so for me, that's very, uh, very stark. And, you know, that, that's what we're discussing right now. What, what on earth? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the, the really striking thing then, if, if you look again at the end, verse 24, it doesn't say there's nothing better for a man than that he should pursue wisdom. Because wisdom is the thing that's gotten him into trouble. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and cause his soul to see good, literally, in his toil. So you've got eat and drink, pleasure, and toil. But Solomon's kind of done with pursuing wisdom for a while. And, it, and wisdom is then the gift in verse 26, perhaps. Um, we had a couple of questions, Pastor Neil, but uh, Anne and then Pastor Neil, go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that at quarter past eight. Um, why would he want to figure out what folly is? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't suss that out at all. But m- maybe it's, it reflects the fact that the... Because folly is a moral, a term of moral disapprobation in the Proverbs and wisdom literature. It's not just like you, you didn't do very well on your SAT. Folly is a, is a, a form of evil, and so by combining it with wisdom, maybe what he's showing is that so inextricably linked with the wisdom that we end up with is this tendency to folly. And so that then makes sense of in much wisdom is much vexation. And what is crooked cannot be made straight. And we're crooked. Right, so um, that would be a little bit like Genesis 3 then. So if trying to figure out what this thing is, because it would be really good to know good and evil, because then I could steer clear of the evil. Ha ha. So maybe it's that sense, and it's not so much Solomon recognized they were mixed in, but at the time, he thought that he could pursue folly so that he could delineate its boundaries and avoid it. But actually what happened was... He got sucked into this vortex through deceiving himself and not being able to get sucked out. And it's Tolkien again, isn't it? It's like you cannot use the ring 
it's, it cannot be wielded by anybody. Pastor Neil, you had your yeah, hand up. Go, go, go ahead, f- f- finishing on your... Mm. I think sometimes we're we close our way through a book like Ecclesiastes and we think that sometimes it's a recipe instead of a reflection. Mm. And if we approach some of this stuff as a recipe, hey, I too am going to go ahead and pursue pleasure like this, that's some bad meat. Yeah. But if we view it as a reflection, yes. this is what I did. And the age-old bumper sticker used to be, uh, it's not a prescription, it's a Yes, yes. So, I, just, I, just I like that. that. I like that. And so, so when you get, Pastor Neil, when you get to verse 24, these nothing better statements, do you take them as sort of cutting through the hevel, cutting through the fog? I, I, I would say so. Right. And, and something for future consideration with regard to Solomon's, it's not just his gold, it's his silver, it's his ivory, it's his peacocks and everything else. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the next chapter is his heart is divided. And yes. that leads to the divided kingdom. Yes. And so here we have this great king. And of course, we read all of this stuff. We look at it on reflection. We're supposed to go, hmm. Matthew 12 is right. There is one greater than Solomon who arrived. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, all, all, of the, um, all of the graphic novels about the book of Revelation to do with the symbolism of the number 666. It is the most hilarious. <laughs> it's just, it's actually, it's Solomon's number. Or more specifically, Solomon's gold's number. It's not Nero. The numbers don't actually add up to 666. I'd love it if they did, because you could really preach that, you know what I mean? But sadly, you can't preach something that's not there. Um, so, um, I, we've gone, oh my goodness, four minutes over time. That actually is bad. So I should stop. Um, questions remaining. My apologies, gentlemen, and thank you for your patience. Um, are you going to come back next time, or have I just so totally depressed you all? You're like, I'm done with this. So chapter 3, verse 1, it's like, right, wake up, everybody. <laughs> we, we need to think about something else for a few minutes, so we will. And that's chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Um, which will just blow intellectual fuses in other directions. So come back next time. We'll do some of that. Let's pray, and then we can go. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your uh, word and for the depth of its wisdom, which we confess exists in a different category from ours, as we've discovered this evening. There's something about even the wisdom of Solomon that led him down dark alleys into dark places. So teach us to eat and drink and see good in the toil that you've set before us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Um, I've got to say I'm enjoying this, and I'm very, very glad of your company on the journey. So please keep coming. And if it gets too depressing, um, send me an email. But otherwise, we'll just keep going, and I'll see you next week.